the right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie We want to start uh, this t- the programme today with a World Health Organisation. Um, what you know about this report? It was re- released last year. said Ireland is set to become Europe's most obese country. By 2030, it says, a staggering 85% of people will be obese in Ireland. Okay, one man who's looking to help tackle this problem is personal trainer Dan Sweeney. He's released a video hoping to educate parents and children on excess sugar being consumed in their diets. He joins us on the line now. Dan, good evening to you. Good evening, Shane. How are you? Uh, I'm very well. I'm very well, thanks. Um, Listen, we'll talk about the video in a moment because it is incredibly uh, powerful. Uh, But first off, sugar. We seem to have an unhealthy relationship with sugar in this country. Yeah, I think it's gone gone crazy um, over the last maybe five, ten years now at this stage. Um, A lot of our foods that we used to look at as as maybe treats are now part of our everyday diet, things like Maybe McDonald's or chocolate bars are starting to creep into our diets more and more and it's increasing our sugar intake, which ultimately is leading to disease and our obesity levels going through the roof. Yeah, the uh, the WHO, as I was saying there, estimates we're going to become the most obese nation in Europe. Is that inevitable or is there something we can do to tackle this issue? I think there's always something we can do, but I think that the reason I brought this video out now is because Something needs to be done now rather than in five years or ten years' time when it's too late. Um, and I think we can all work together and make a massive difference. So, yes, we can We can make a, a big change. Okay, just you, the video. If you, By the way, if you want to watch uh, the video, you just log on to YouTube and search for Are You Overdosing Your Kids on Sugar? But, Dan, um, I, I watched the video and, and effectively it's the, the scene is a, a loving family um, yeah. going about uh, breakfast, uh, mom and dad and, and the kids. and so you, But you replace the foods basically with what's actually in them. So the, the mother is pouring a bowl of cereal for her beloved son but what she's effectively doing in this video, and you show it in the video, is she's effectively pouring in cups of sugar into his bowl. Exactly. We wanted something to immediately hit people. We wanted something that would be thought-provoking um, and immediately striking. And I think this video really hits home with people. A lot of parents are, are giving their, their kids cereals that are full of sugar in the morning, and they know that there is maybe some bit, some bit of sugar in it, but they don't fully understand the amount that's in it. You know, And I think this video is just shows a a normal family, like you say, in in the morning and shows the amount of sugar that can be consumed within the space of maybe half an hour before leaving to go to school or going to work. And when when mam pours the the, the, uh, the the cups of sugar in place of cereal, are they actually, uh, actually accurate or are you actually saying, you know, there's X number of cups in a bowl of cereal or is there a bit of poetic license here? Oh, no, no, like the, these, these are accurate numbers. We, we've gone off, we've done a lot of research from these and um, we, we've gone off the, the recommendations from the World Health Organization, and we've gone off the serving sizes from the back of these ingredients or these um, foods. And a lot of them would be, like a lot of the food sources would be a lot of would be conservative. One thing would be Nutella, and I know a lot of people are commenting online saying that that the stats would be wrong on this. But the serving uh, size on the back of a Nutella jar wouldn't be the amount you actually put on. You'd actually put on a lot more. The serving size would be 15 grams. Um, and that's a small amount of Nutella. A lot of parents put on a lot more than that. So the, the stats would be 
by you after it. Yeah, the, I have to say the, the chocolate spread one was the one that did make me feel most uncomfortable because, yeah. uh, you know, I'd I'd sort of be conscious about juices and stuff like that, but with Nutella or, or chocolate spreads, I would tend to kind of go, ah, sure, you know, what yeah. what harm can I do? And uh, But but you're saying there's a lot of sugar there. Exactly. If you if you look at the back of the, the, the jar on that one and look at the ingredients, sugar would be number one listed which shows that it's, it's mostly made out of sugar. You know, a lot of people will kind of look at it as saying that it's not so bad because it's made from hazelnuts, but I, I, I don't have the exact number now, but if you look at the, the percentage of hazelnuts, it'll be very, very low. The first ingredient is sugar in it, which shows that it's mostly made from sugar. Are we addicted to sugar? Um, I think we can be addicted to anything, really, if, if, we, guess, if we consume too much of it. And I know that like this video is aimed at sugar and I'm not totally anti-sugar, I'm not totally saying that you need to cut all these foods out of your diet immediately, but it, it just needs to be um, kind of cut down in, in that we, we treat these as treats again rather than part of our everyday diet. You know, we need to focus on reducing the number and um, maybe come away from that addiction that some people have. Uh, George and Claire is texting in saying, uh, eat less, that's the yeah. obesity issue, not sugar. Um, I, I totally disagree. There's plenty, plenty of studies done that shows that people will consume the same amount of calories over the course of two or three weeks, with one person consuming a higher amount of sugar than the other, and that person will gaining weight. You know, so I, I, I truly believe that sugar is is the main main cause. Uh, is it? A, I mean, we're eating far more sugar than we were thirty years ago or forty years ago when yeah. when I was a kid. Is that a wealth issue? Uh, I mean, you certainly imagine we're no less educated than we... In fact, I think we're a lot more educated about... Yeah. about certainly about food, whatever about yeah. our general education, about food and sugars. That we're, we're, we're a lot more aware now than we were then. Yet we seem to be eating an awful lot more. Uh, is it a wealth issue? Is it ignorance? Um, I think two points from, from what you just said. Like, I know people will kind of say that it's, it's, it can be very expensive to eat healthy, but I, I disagree again on, on that part. If, no, no, like sorry, I, I wasn't saying that. I was saying uh, we have more, I, I, I think we have, is it that we have more money to buy rubbish, I think, than we had, uh, oh, than we had 40 years, 30, 40 years ago? Um, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't know, but I agree with that. I, like, if you look at the education side, that you said that we're more educated, yes, and, and no, we wouldn't be hugely educated on the terms of nutrition. Nutrition isn't, taught um, in schools and this is one of the things No, no, I Dan, I accept that it isn't and I'm not saying there isn't more we can do but we, we're a lot more aware than we were 40 years ago and yet we weren't piling sugar into our kids' diet 40 years ago Yeah, that's true, that's true No, but, but I think the trouble is and this video points to it is that a lot of foods would be would have hidden sugar in it and people just don't know a lot of people we can understand that right, sugar is sugar, we need to reduce our sugar a bit and we need to reduce our junk food but there's a lot of sugar being added to foods now that people are not aware of. And you would have seen it that Dalmio came out during the week, and it's this or last week, sorry, and it this hugely shocked people. People wouldn't have thought that Dalmio was so unhealthy, but now they've come out and said themselves that their own, some of their own foods should be only eaten once uh, once a week. Okay, Dalmio being, what what kind of foods are Dalmio, sorry? Dalmio do um, pasta sauce. Oh, the pasta sauce. Yeah. Sorry, of course, of course to do. Yeah, yeah, no, I did, I did, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, I just had, had a blank there. Um, yeah, lots of texts coming through on this. Uh, my mother used to put sugar on my sandwiches in the 1970s, says Dave. I think a lot of people did that, all right. Yeah. Uh, somebody else saying, surely it's the manufacturer's fault with misleading information. Is the information misleading? I, I think the information is there if you look on, on the back mm. of the jar in a lot of cases. Well, no, I, I can understand that, that text is um, query because 
Like if you look at cereals, um, a lot of cereals on the front of the packaging, that you know that they're aimed at kids and they'll say that they've added vitamins and it's high in vitamin this and vitamin that. But it's, at the end of the day, it's hugely high in sugar and it's it's fooling parents at times because parents will look at it and see that there's added vitamins and minerals or there's whole grains or there's multi-grains, things like Cheerios, but they can be high in sugar, added sugar also. Mm. Um, juices is, is the other one that um, a, a lot of people probably aren't aware I mean my kids basically call me the juice Nazi because I just won't let them and I'm always pouring it down the sink if, if, I, yeah. if there's some left over from parties and stuff I mean am I, be, am I overreacting there or, or is it as bad as No uh, I don't think so. like, there, there are some, some good and some bad I, I recently posted something on my Facebook page showing the amount of sugar in some of the more popular um, juice drinks one being Capri Sun that showed the the sugar content, and I compared it to uh, five Oreos. There was the same amount of sugar in one Capri Sun as there was in five Oreos. Um, and I also had a Ribena, 500 milliliter of um, Ribena, had the same amount of sugar as five Fredo Bears, you know, the small chocolate Fredo Bears. So yeah. these, these juices, you wouldn't think that there is that much sugar in them, but at the end of the day, they can be a lot. Uh, Lester says, I'm also the juice Nazi in my house. Don't apologise, Shane. Every house <laughs> needs one. Um yeah. Uh, another listener says given how many carbs we take these days the last thing we need to eat uh, added and hidden sugar foods is is that a is that a fair point as well yeah yeah it's very true I like, and I'd like to just go back on the, the thing your, your, is it your own, own kids are calling you the, the juice devil you said was it the juice the Nazi juice? yeah yeah. Like, I think that's, that's some of the troubles that we're dealing with at the moment that parents were kind of well, maybe not not parents, maybe grandparents and uncles and aunts, and they kind of look at a parent and say, oh, sh- sh- they can have one, they can have one that we need to treat them a bit more, or they'll go to their grandparents' house and they'll have um, some treat there, you know? So, like, it's kind of been hit, they've been hit with it um, everywhere they go, every party they go to, every house they call during being given a bit of a, a treat, you know, whereas that mightn't have been done maybe 10, 15 years ago. So we just need to be more aware of it. Yeah, the, the other thing that drives me mad is... Uh is uh, around Easter time the number of Easter eggs yeah. kids get like yeah. what I, I don't want to sound like the guy from Monty Python in my day but I know I'm going to in my day you got one Easter egg now you get kids getting freaking 20 Easter eggs it's just yeah. bonkers like I know it's, it's advertising again is, is, uh, plays a big part but the price of them they've gone they've gone down hugely I think I see was a two for something like 450 inside in Tesco or maybe it was less but like in my local Tesco around Easter time I'd go in and there was walls and walls of Easter eggs um, everywhere to be seen and it's kind of disheartening because I can remember Tesco coming out a few years ago and they were one of the first supermarkets to take away the, the junk foods away from their tills but it seems that they've actually brought them closer to the door whereas you're hit as soon as you step in the door yeah, uh, Brian Waterford says there's a picture of nuts on the jars of chocolate spread but they're made of palm oil and sugar Exactly. Yeah, I uh, think I think the the ingredient list. I think um, hazelnuts would be less than ten percent in the in the Nutella. Okay. Ed says I cut out processed foods uh, and sugar. I lost over fifteen kilograms in a yep. year. That's extraordinary, yep. isn't it? It's it's crazy. I've since this video has gone out, I've received messages from people all over the world. Um, and most recently, a message from a guy in Canada two two or three days ago I posted on my Facebook page again and it was a story of just where he basically had type 2 diabetes just from, from bad diet um, and he'd put on a huge amount of weight and what he did was just reduce his sorry he just cut out um, processed foods from his diet reduced his sugar intake and he lost £100 and he, he showed me some pictures as well um, redu- um, reduced his weight by £100 and stopped the onset of type 2 diabetes also There'll be parents listening to this who won't disagree with a word 
you have said but who will say I know I know I should be doing more but you know I come in from work I'm knackered uh, I have to get something on the table quickly I'd love to cook everything from scratch uh, but it's just not possible I I totally understand that parents will be very very busy with work but we just need to create a bit more awareness we just need to be able to share um, quicker foods for parents to be able to cook when they come home you know it's just the more we talk about it the more information gets spread the more recipes get spread the more parents will find it easier themselves you know because if they're feeding themselves with healthier foods their kids are going to be receiving the same thing they won't need to be cooking two or three dinners you know and as soon as they start to get these foods into kids kids will just get used to them they'll just grow up with them Okay, good stuff. Um, so the advice to parents is just you know make time, educate yourselves, and and just exactly. cut. It certainly reduce uh, sugar. No, don't cut it out, but certainly reduce the amount of sugar. Exactly, there's a time, there's a time and a place for everything. I'm not the type of person that says cut it out completely from your diet, but the main point would be just to go back to go back to basics, go back to the way our grandparents did it, cooking basic, um, real ingredient foods, and you would find it hard to go wrong. Okay, good stuff. Dan Sweeney, personal trainer and nutritionist based in Cork. Thanks very much for joining us. If you want to see Dan's video, log on to YouTube, search Are You Overdosing Your Kids on Sugar? I'll tell you what, if you do so, you'll never look at certain cereals and certain foods in the same way again. The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Okay, want to turn to the issue of government formation. Uh, Alan Kelly has been speaking in the Dáil. Lots of statements on water in the Dáil today. And... um, he pretty much let fly. Have a listen to this. If the scrapping of water charges goes ahead, let's call it what it is. Political, economic and environmental sabotage. Let nobody think we are in any way experiencing new politics here. And this is the birth of a new political maturity, if the current speculation is accurate. I believe this is 1977 all over again. Groundhog Day when unpopular local rates were abolished by Fianna Fáil and people paid income tax rates up to 60% in the 80s. We risk repeating that mistake again. Every other European country has some type of domestic charge on water. Okay, that was Alan Kelly in the Dáil. Um, interesting speech. Of course, it does slightly ignore the fact that the proposals he did bring in weren't exactly uh, pro-conservation. And it also ignores the fact that it was the Labour Party back in 1997 that uh, abolished the uh, the law, insisting that every new house should have a water meter. And that's part of the reason we're in the mess we're in today. But notwithstanding that, uh, we're joined the line by uh, Owen Harris, Sunday Independent columnist. Um, Owen, you, you were listening to Alan Kelly there. He kind of has a point, doesn't he? No, he doesn't. I thought he had some cheek. Um, for a man who thinks that power is an aphrodisiac, clearly water acts as a kind of an anti-aphrodisiac with him, judging by his kind of sullenness there. I mean, what kind of a memory does he have? Like, coming up to the general election of 2011, Labour promised it would prevent Fine Gael from bringing in water charges. And then in December 2013, when Phil Hogan rushed through the whole Irish water water bill through the dial with four hours of debate, rushed it through, rammed it through. Uh, Kelly and the rest of the Labour Party sat in their hands. They have no moral authority to whinge about this uh, fudge, which it is, to form a government. None at all. Okay, on the wider issue of government formation, which obviously includes the the, the water issue, where are we now? Are we effectively almost there in terms of getting a, a government put together, do you think? I believe so. Um, and I believe that... Um, that a lot of the, the the feeling that this took a long time, 
that the media itself um, uh, has has a part has some blame to bear, because you would think that we were in some kind of major crisis. We've been 60 days at it. Spain has been a whole year trying to form a government. And there were very real, intractable issues at stake. And all that sort of stuff in, that you get in television and the radio playing wacky tunes and talking about civil war politics and the north of Ireland peace process and playing bits of funny music as we watch them coming in and out, that merely distracts from the, from the reality of the fact that the vote at the general election left us with a very messy situation. And it left Fianna Fáil with a particular problem. If Fianna Fáil agreed to uh, form the Grand Coalition, that the media kept demanding of it, then that would be very bad, in my view, and in the view of many other people, for Irish politics. It would have created, the Grand Coalition would have created a behemoth, it would have polarised politics between centre and far left and anarchists, but above all, it would have left Sinn Féin in the saddle. They would definitely have become a major party, probably a government party in a couple of years, and that wouldn't be good for Irish democracy, I think. But be that as it may, like what's, what we're getting for the last few weeks is a constant sour thread of commentary in the media. And that comes from the fact that from before the election, a huge section of media had decided that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael should form a grand coalition. No matter what the actual politics were on the ground, this should be done because it looked neat. This is the kind of stuff I used to remember from student politics when I was at college. Like, all the people say, we must have a left-right divide. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael should get together. That's not the way the reality is on the ground. The reality on the ground is that we had a messy result in the election. The reality on the ground is that Sinn Féin is there, and we don't know a lot about what their long-term project is. We don't know whether their project is in the Republic or in Northern Ireland. And Fianna Fáil has some serious decisions to make. Now, from... From day one, I was part of a minority, and I must say, I think you were too, and Stephen Collins and others, we, 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 we were not, we were sceptical of the Grand Coalition. And we weren't just sceptical because we thought it shouldn't be done or anything. It is just like the reality on the ground was such that it was clear to me, and from the night of the general election, if you remember, I have been writing consistently and saying consistently there would be no Grand Coalition, and consistently saying that the best option was a minority Fianna Gael government. Fianna Fáil were willing to have that. They were willing to put up with that because it would allow them to fight off Sinn Féin and see off that threat to their, to, the, uh, to their left. And people go on as if Fianna Fáil shouldn't be doing that and as if there was no kind of... As we'd not a dog in that fight. We have a dog in the fight as to who wins between Fianna Fáil and, Fianna, and Sinn Féin on the left. I heard Joan Collins uh, today when she ran the anti-austerity uh, programme, when she read that Fianna Fáil had stole the AA um, people before profit clothes on water. And <laughs> what else does she think politics is about? Fianna, Fáil, Fianna Fáil's job, as it sees it, I imagine, is that it's got to see off all these small Trotskyite parties and it's got to see off Sinn Féin. That's a very real political agenda and they've got to follow it. And they've been doing so. So Fianna Fáil has been willing from day one to facilitate a Fianna Gael minority government. There was a price for it. The price for it was that it needed a deal on Irish water. And it seemed to me that that, that deal was there. Uh, there was two things. It was Irish water itself and it was Irish water charges. Fianna Fáil conceded to Fianna Gael on the issue of retaining Irish water. Basically, they gave them that. In return, Fianna Fáil negotiators would have expected a decent postponement on the charges issue. But instead of that, what we got at the weekend was a sudden kind of um, a fusion, an eruption of what I would call Fianna Gael trots. A whole gang in Fianna Gael got into a kind of a paranoia that they mustn't give in to Fianna Fáil, they mustn't back down, and they were prepared to fight an election. On what issue? They were prepared to fight an election on the issue of retaining water charges. Mm. I wish them luck with that one. They seem to have copped on a little bit in that regard. Uh, about time for them. 
Is it a dangerous game? I mean, what you're saying about the, the political strategy of Fianna Fáil, that is undoubtedly true. But is there a dangerous game about uh, Fianna Fáil following Sinn Féin and the AAA PBP down that particular lane? And is there a danger by doing so, they'll be embracing the kind of irresponsible populist politics that arguably got us into this mess in the first place? Well, it's a fine-tuned, it's a fine-tuning game. Fianna Fáil have to do enough to cover its left flank. I think they've done brilliantly. I think Fianna Fáil have played a strategic and tactical blinder. They have done just enough to take and steal, as John Collins accused, to steal the water charges issue from the Trotskyite and Sinn Féin opposition. Sinn Féin are actually flailing around. They don't know what to do. Having done that, Fianna Fáil has also made it clear that it does accept that people are going to have to pay for water, either indirect or indirect, or indirect taxation. But what, they're, what, what they had were up against is a very real public, a constant public perception that there was something rotten in the state of Denmark as regards Irish water. And that was well-founded, because Irish water was a kind of a Fine Gael thing, a Fine Gael bag. It was it rushed through by the Taoiseach's great friend Phil Hogan. It was rammed through the Doyle. There was no debate, and from the very beginning, there was bad karma attached to it. Within days, for example, John Tierney had to admit that consultants had been paid £50 million which really left a sour taste in the public mouth. And then soon, soon, soon after that, we were told that consultants or that, uh, that staff would get uh, nearly 20% bonuses. And Fergus O'Dowd was in Fine Gael himself, to be given, given his due, was honest enough to admit that it was an unmitigated disaster. You see, there was bad karma hanging around Irish war from the start. And that was Enda Kenny's fault. And he carried that bad karma. And anything difficulties that he had in the last few weeks, he can trace that back to the bad karma of how Irish water was set up. Now, I don't think Fianna Fáil behaved particularly badly, and I don't think Fianna Fáil have uh, rubbed Fianna Gael's nose into the ground, whatever Fianna Gael TDs might think. The end result is that Fianna Fáil have effectively accepted that Irish water, or some such water authority, will have to be there. And secondly, well, what they want in return for that, as I said, they wanted some suspension, a postponement, uh, a layoff on, on water charges. And at the weekend, it looked as if Fine Gael, the Fine Gael trots were not prepared to give them that, that they were prepared to kind of uh, hang, hang around and take a, a hard stance on it. Now, that's ridiculous. Stephen Donnelly, I think, uh, of the Social Democrats, will be one of the most kind of rigid people on, uh, you know, high civic purpose and doing the right thing. But even he, he says that a certain fudge is now necessary in order to form a government. That's what politics is about. It's what senior hurling really means. Senior hurling does not mean do the tough stuff. It means that politics is actually about parties trying to gain advantages, which of a huge importance to the Irish people. We carry on as if, the, as if Fianna Fáil was doing this and it was only of value to Fianna Fáil. It's of huge importance to the Irish people whether Fianna Fáil or Sinn Féin form the opposition learned. It's of huge importance to the Irish people whether Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael get together and form a monstrous behemoth, a huge dinosaur that would dominate and distort politics completely. So what Fianna Fáil might be doing might be in Fianna Fáil's interest, but I would argue it's also in, in the in long-term interest of the Irish people. Do you believe, I mean there's a lot of uh, a lot of pundits, uh, and I agree with you, a lot of them had hung their hat on a Fianna Fáil, uh, Fine Gael coalition and were furious it didn't happen but then they're also saying it's inevitable it will happen at some stage I'm, I'm guessing from what you said that you don't necessarily agree with that, is that it is inevitable. Well, I've said before, I've written before, I hope that in a hundred years' time there will be a Fianna Fáil and a Fianna Gael, whatever they're called. I, that is to say, I hope there will be... You see, 
all politics in Europe now, fundamentally, all in, in all stable countries, in countries which are going to have a happy future, in, in, in any country with a happy future, all political parties gravitate to some form of social democracy. It's only social democracy to the right or left. If you look at Doyle Aaron, there's hardly a party in Doyle Even Sinn Féin is a social democratic party in terms of the fact that it will not go for all, for all out for, full blood, for full-blooded socialism. So social democracy is, if you like, the template, the norm. It's where you stand in that spectrum. And it's very valuable, has been hugely valuable to our state that there was a social democratic party leaning to the right, Fianna Gael, and a social democratic party leaning to the left, Fianna Fáil, with the Labour Party alternating in between. That was why we didn't have fascist takeovers. It's why we didn't have communist uprisings. It's why we've had a stable democracy. One of the few good things we've had is a stable democracy. One of the oldest and most stable in Europe, and a lot of that of the credit for that belongs to the Fianna Fáil um, alternating governments. Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael alternating governments. Yeah, Fianna Fáil, yeah. Fianna Gael alternating governments with Labour, if you like, keeping the conscience to the left and right of them as it happens. And I hope that system will go on. And I don't share the general kind of, uh, the, the general consensus in the media that it would be a good thing if they joined up. What we would get is an extremely, uh, extreme set of polarities in Dáil that would lead to constant crisis. I think it's very important that Fianna Fáil does well and that Fianna Gael do well. I think this minority government will do, by the way, I think it will be a far more stable government. I was going to ask you because yeah, you, okay. you spoke about a, a stable democracy which I, I I agree with you on we like and it's something we take for granted in this country and many not many other countries have had it for as long as we've had it can we get a stable government for the next three years yes we can look from day one from the time the election result finished it was quite clear that Fianna Fáil was not going to go into any grand coalition all you had to do was to stop any five members of Fianna Fáil and ask them I don't know how the media didn't go out and do their ordinary bit of investigative journalism and stop and ask Fianna Fáil. They went on before the election and after the election. The majority of the media went on whining and whining and whinging and demanding a grand coalition. And they haven't got one. So the sourness has gone on. The sourness, sourness is now extending into their doom and gloom prognostications about the future of this government. I believe it's in Fianna Fáil's interest and the interest of the Irish people, by the way, too. It's in Fianna Fáil's interest, if it wants to be loved and respected by the Irish people, Fianna Fáil can't bring this government down, and nor do they wish to do so. They need the time to teach Sinn Féin some lessons in senior hurling. So I think three years is a guaranteed minimum for this government. And I think because it's open to the Doyle, and is, is not a, a domineering government like the last one was, because the last government was a very domineering government, uh, the, the Hogan water bill ramming through was, was, was typical. Mm-hmm. Because of that, I think it would be a much more open and democratic government, and I think it would be a healthier government. And far from being filled with doom and gloom and, and, and dark thoughts, I am actually looking forward to quite a, a good three years of democracy under a, under a minority government. Uh, and, I mean, this notion of a more involved doll, I mean, it literally has to happen this time. I mean, the days, mm-hmm. for example, of the Big Bang budget, as Micheál Martin ca- uh, calls it, where the Minister of Finance stands up and tells the doll what it's going to vote on. I mean, it can't work like that anymore. Well, you see, um, like, like, um, like St. Augustine said, like, make me chaste, but not yet. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. they're going to be met chaste now, whether they like it or not. We're going to have a reformed oil in, in, like, not the kind of formal one that takes place in political science classes, but how, it take, how things really happen on the real ground. There's going to have to be more give and take. And while I'm at it, um, um, I now see that Fine Gael is, um, is going to have to talk to independent. I would hope that Fianna Gael, when talking to the independents, wouldn't put themselves to too much trouble. I don't see why, if, why if Fianna Fáil are prepared to support Fianna Gael in a minority government, that's pretty much all they want. 
I think they need the bare minimum of independence and I don't think they should give them anything because one of the things that really needs to be sorted out in Irish politics, I hope Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and the Labour Party flourish and I hope to see a huge diminution in number of independents because a lot of this current crisis, probably 90% of this current crisis has been caused by local populism voting for local independent TDs. Not a good thing. Half of them are of no use at whatsoever. At I least half of them are no use and if they had pushed it at the weekend, which Fianna Fáil were quite willing to see them to the wire, um, there's a part of me regrets that we didn't go to that wire and see off a lot of these independents who are superfluous to to, to need and purpose. Last question. Even notwithstanding what you're saying, and and I'm inclined to agree with you about about how the new doll is going to work, is there a danger though that because the government is dependent on votes and and the opposition kind of have, have them over a barrel in many ways, is there a danger that tough decisions will be shirked, that it will just be populist decisions that will be made in this doll and that difficult decisions that governments sometimes need to make just will not happen? Well, I think um, like some of the most important decisions are kind of made for us anyway by the economy. I think if the improvement of the economy continues, like there, there's not a, a lot of that, that won't be a big problem. Yes, I think certain kind of hard decisions will be shirked. But for example, there's also um, a chance to do the reverse. For example, it's not necessary if Fianna Fáil and, uh, is, is, is properly up Fianna Gael. It's quite possible for the two of them to agree, for example, in, uh, to, to handle some of the most outrageous demands from some uh, specialist uh, uh, groups, not just the public sector, but professional classes. This is a good chance to take on the barristers, take on the doctors, the dentists, and all the other uh, special interest groups in the country. I mean, there's a tacit agreement. Fundamentally, I think Geraldine Kennedy coined the name. What we have in we don't have a grand coalition here, but we have effectively a national coalition in all but name. And I think that could, could make some quite tough decisions if it wished to do so. OK, fascinating stuff. Owen Harris, Sunday Independent columnist. Thanks indeed for taking the time to talk to us uh, this afternoon. The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business. The two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie OK, we're going to turn now to uh, yesterday's inquest into the Hillsborough disaster, which found... Uh, that the 96 men and women were unlawfully killed. Uh, The political fallout uh, from that verdict continues uh, with the news in the last hour or so that uh, David Crompton has been suspended as Chief Constable of South Yorkshire Police. Uh, Crompton's force, of course, had been criticised for its conduct during the inquest uh, and uh, South Yorkshire's Police and Crown Commissioner Dr Alan Billing said he had been left with no choice other than to suspend Crompton with immediate effect. He said he'd reached the decision with a heavy heart. Uh, he said his decision is based on the erosion of public trust and confidence referenced in statements and comments in the House of Commons this lunchtime, along with public calls for the Chief Constable's resignation from a number of quarters. And uh, he said he had acted because of, quote, the difference of perception, unquote, between the Chief Constable and Hillsborough families about questions in relation to the for, uh, the lawyers, uh, the forces lawyers had raised about the conduct of fans on the day of the tragedy in 1989. Okay, in the same vein, have a listen to this. Someone's hiding in the bushes with a 
telephoto lens While their editor assures them The means justifies the ends Cause we only hunt celebrities It's just a bit of fun But Scousers never buy the sun Okay, that's uh, Billy Bragg, Never by the Sun. And of course, the Sun uh, in the UK has a notorious association with the Hillsborough tragedy after its infamous The Truth front page. It was published days after uh, the tragedy. And although it apologised for the coverage, the Sun remains a deeply unpopular paper on Merseyside. Some people suggesting the paper had rubbed salt in the wounds by failing to cover the Hillsborough verdict on the front page of its paper today. Uh, to discuss the background to this, we're joined by Roy Greenslade, media commentator with The Guardian and professor of journalism at uh, City University. Um, Roy, for, I suppose, younger listeners, and I mean, it is a long time ago, you'd go back to, to 1989 for the story. Just remind us of this uh, infamous front page of The Sun with the, the headline, The Truth. Okay, it, it, about four days after the tragedy occurred, The Sun ran a front page with a very large headline saying, The Truth. Uh, and it accused, in its uh, uh, in the smaller headlines below it, uh, the fact that drunken fans were the major cause for the catastrophe, uh, that fans had stolen uh, uh, from the pockets of, uh, of the victims, and that they had also urinated on the police. Um, uh, and uh, these were... And, and that, in effect, um, the police were in no way to blame for what had occurred. It was due to the drunkenness of the fans themselves, Liverpool fans in particular, well, indeed, only Liverpool fans, um, and that um, this was also part of the rowdiness that they had surged into the enclosure without permission, uh, some of them without tickets, um, and it was a pretty comprehensive uh, uh, attack on those fans. Now, what needs to be said uh, is that these allegations uh, were made in a uh, in a piece of agency copy, freelance agency copy, that went to every newspaper across Britain, and they were repeated in every newspaper, and that included even the Liverpool newspaper, the Liverpool Echo. However. The difference between the way they were covered in uh, those newspapers um, was that they were said to be, as I've just said, allegations. The problem for the Sun was that it called them the truth and accepted them at face value. I ought to mention just one newspaper that didn't cover it. There was one newspaper that didn't, and that was the Daily Mirror for reasons we can explore if you wish. But the Daily Mirror stood back from the rest and didn't even cover the allegations. We, we won't go into too much detail, but is that something to do with the the, the minor strike? Because obviously the uh, the same police force were, were involved in incidents with with uh, minors during during the minor strike of a few years earlier. Uh, you mean, is, it, is that the Mirror's failure to cover yeah. it because of that? No, it had to do with the defiance of three members of staff, uh, two reporters, one of them, by the way, uh, from Northern Ireland and now sadly dead, Ted Oliver, uh, and uh, two of his reporting colleagues, um, told the news desk at the Mirror that they 
they believed that this was police spin, that it would be wrong to run it, and that two of them said they would resign if the Mirror ran it. The night editor of the Daily Mirror, uh, now retired, everyone's retired, of course, that dealt with this story, uh, now retired, um, said, uh, these are men of such substance and such experience that I will take the decision not to run it, which, of course, turned out to be very wise indeed. It was really about instinct, a combination of instinct and experience on the part of those journalists. Now, I suppose we should say the greatest sin in all of this is was carried out by the by the, the people in South Yorkshire Police who briefed on this and knowing in the full knowledge that it was absolute nonsense to try and deflect some of the blame from what they probably quickly realised their own shortcomings and very, very serious shortcomings in terms of how they managed uh, this, this FA Cup semi-final. But in relation to The Sun, why did they go after this story so bald-headed? Well, we'd need to do uh, a bit of a psychiatric examination of the controversial editor of the paper at the time, uh, Kelvin McKenzie, who remains to this day a columnist on The Sun, which is drawing uh, yet more criticism of that newspaper. Kelvin was uh, a maverick, eccentric editor, famous for going out on a limb uh, on all sorts of stories, notably famous for the gotcha front page during the Falklands War, uh, for attacking uh, people in public life associated with the European Union and uh, and left-wing politicians and so on. Uh, so it was well within his ambit to be outspoken and to run an outspoken newspaper. But there was a secondary thing here. Um, I, I worked with him for some time, not at this period. I'd, I'd moved on to the Sunday Times by then, but um, during this uh, during my long period with him, he had, uh, I know this is a strange thing to say because you might find it very strange, but he had a prejudice against against people on Merseyside. Um, he didn't. He thought that they were all whingers and scroungers and no goods. Um, he actually thinks, he thinks the same of Scots people as well and probably the Irish. He is full of prejudice. Uh, but that prejudice very much informed his decision-making. Um, and it was that which I think underlay his his belief that what he was being told was true. I ought to, I, uh, in his defence, I ought to say this: uh, that the political editor of the paper, Trevor Kavanagh, who is still there to this day, that Trevor uh, Kavanagh was told by I think Burdeningham, who was the press secretary to Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. that they believed it to be true. And the reason for that is because two Tory MPs, briefed by the police, then briefed Mrs. Thatcher, who then, I understand, and we we will get to the heart of this when the Independent Police Complaints Commission eventually report. We don't know whether she was actually briefed also directly by the man in charge then, David Duckinfield. We don't know whether that happened. But she believed it to be so. And I think when Trevor Kavanagh passed that on to Kelvin McKenzie, he thought that confirmed what was in the agency copy and lost the head in the sense that, you know, he, he forgot that these were allegations and went for that headline, the truth. And then, sadly, when the whole balloon blew up and it became obvious uh, that it was a spin operation by the police, unlike other newspapers, who stood down and realised what they'd done, he at 
initially refused to apologise, and that only led to the enforcing of a boycott um, across Merseyside on the Sun, which amazingly, after 27 years, still holds fast to this day. Um, very few small corner shops, news agents carry the Sun. One or two do, but under the counter, and people have to go and ask for it. Only the larger range supermarkets do, and very often people go in and uh, disrupt the bundles or hide them away and so on. So it, it, it's, it's a really, as far as the people of Liverpool are concerned, there is no way that they will ever endorse the sun, by the sun. And anyone who gets associated with it, they were hugely critical of Wayne Rooney at one stage for writing for the sun. Uh, and he stood down from it. They were hugely critical of Ed Miliband for holding up a copy of The Sun during his um, hapless election campaign. Anyone who in any way uh, can be brought to book for their connection to The Sun uh, will suffer from the outrage of the bereaved people of Merseyside. Okay, we'll leave it there. Roy Greenslade, media commentator with The Guardian and professor of journalism at City University. Thanks indeed for joining us. The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie